Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Let's start off, unfortunately, with an obituary from the calendar section, the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 27, 2023. Ruth Seymour, 1935 to 2023. She led KCRW to radio stardom. Longtime executive built NPR station into a public media giant by Matt Pierce. Ruth Seymour, the longtime radio executive who built KCRW into a public media powerhouse in the late 20th century, transforming the sonic landscape of Los Angeles and beyond, died Friday. She was 88. Seymour's death was confirmed by her daughter, Celia Hirschman. When Seymour arrived at KCRW FM 89.9 in 1997, the station was housed in an elementary school adjacent to Santa Monica College, where staff could hear the hum of the nation's oldest radio transmitter west of the Mississippi through the walls of the converted classrooms. The listenership at the time was just as modest, its numbers overshadowed by Crosstown Public Radio Pier KUSC-FM 91.5. By the time Seymour retired as KCRW's general manager in 2010, after more than 30 years at the helm, the transmitter had been upgraded, the offices had moved across the street to SMC, and KCRW had become a cultural and intellectual trendsetter, not just for Angelinos, but also for public radio listeners across America. Seymour, a bohemian taskmaker with a keen eye for talent and often uh, unrelenting standards, played a critical role in boosting the on-air careers of host and storyteller Ira Glass, the uh, This American Life, journalist Warren Only, Which Way L.A. and To The Point, satirist Harry Shear, Le Show, literary critic Michael Silverblatt, Bookworm, and film critic Elvis Mitchell, The Treatment. Her influence continued through KCRW creations like Morning Becomes Eclectic and Left, Right, and Center. She was widely respected. She was disagreed with widely. She was controversial, said Susan Stamberg, a longtime NPR host and friend who hailed Seymour as visionary. You always knew where she came from. She never hedged her words, and she always made an impact, positive or negative. Seymour's presence often was an exercise in contrasts. She was a New York intellectual who found a home in sunny Santa Monica, a female leader thriving in a media industry dominated by male executives, a colorful elbow thrower in the staid academic world of public radio, a snob who was not above the occasional PR stunt, a secular Jew who broadcast hours of Yiddish cultural programming on December's typically Christmas-dominated airwaves. Seymour's three-hour annual show celebrating Yiddishkeit called Philosophers, Fiddlers, and Fools launched in 1978 with a combination of music, stories, and Yiddish. It was quintessentially Seymour, quintessentially eccentric, and it landed. The program ended at And All Things Considered came on the air, Seymour recalled in an essay years later. The phones began to ring and ring and ring. They ran for hours. People waited until a line was free just to say thank you. Some were crying. Others wanted to tell their own story. 
we, each car was emotional. We were a handful of individuals in a little bungalow inside a deserted schoolyard, stunned and overwhelmed by the response to the program. Seymour was born Ruth Epstein, the first of three last names she'd adopted in her life on February 17, 1935, at Sedenham Hospital in Harlem, New York. Her father, Jack Epstein, was a Polish-born furrier. Her mother, furrier, her mother, Celia Gerlich, fled Poland after slapping a policeman in a dispute over some eggs, according to family lore. The pair met at New York's New School for Social Research and were active in the Workmen's Circle, a cooperative association of Jewish workers which led to lively debates about current events at the dinner table. They were my link to the word Yiddishkeit, a world that was being destroyed as I was growing up, Seymour recalled later. It was a world she would later resurrect over the airwaves. Seymour studied Hebrew and Yiddish at City College of New York under famous linguist Max Weinreich. There she met her future husband, prominent beat poet Jack Hirschman, marrying him in 1954 and adopting his last name. She rose to prominence under the name Ruth Hirschman and changed her last name to Seymour in honor of a relative later in life. It was a bohemian marriage that produced two children, Celia and David, and familial tours of duty at Dartmouth, Jack was a professor, UCLA, and across Europe. Counterculture was in the air, as was a bit of cultural celebrity. The family was friends with Anin, Allen Ginsberg, and Leonard Cohen. Seymour, starting a career in radio journalism, conducted interviews by tape, but one day, I threw my tape recorder into the Aegean and went off to live on a Greek island, she later told the Times. I gave up an interview with Jean-Paul Sartre when he won the Nobel Peace Prize to go to Greece and be an existentialist. My parents were a bit hedonistic and narcissistic and adventurous. The focus was not on the children, Celia Hirschman said. We were loved deeply, but the focus was on their experiences. That's a pretty unconventional life. Observing the family, songwriter Cohen called them four archipelagos, Hirschman said. The archipelagos drifted further apart. Ruth and Jack divorced in 1973. By then, she had taken a job as a program director at the left-wing Los Angeles radio station, KPFK 90.7, producing programs on great artists. The station also aired tapes from the Symbionese Liberation Army, which had kidnapped Patricia Hurst. Her business partner, general manager Will Lewis, said he created a program guide that welcomed all communications from any group, and we pledged to keep the information confidential. I felt obligated. Ruth didn't like the idea right away, said Lewis, who served time in jail for contempt of court for refusing to hand over the SLA tapes to law enforcement. After the pair were dumped by KPFK and some kind of intra-leftist purge, Seymour landed as general manager of KCRW in 1977 and brought along Lewis as a management consultant. It was a professional partnership that would last for more than 30 years. With the 1960s and its cultural revolutions and radical campaigns fading in the rear-view mirror, Seymour's fateful twist at KCRW was to repackage leftist cultural sensibilities for a merely leftist Santa Monica mainstream, plus a heavy dose of media savvy. The transmitter got upgraded, and the potential audience got way bigger. 
on came the talent, whom Seymour spotted. Comedian Shearer, storyteller Joe Frank, generation of hip hipper disc jockeys. On, on came the eclectic and literary programming, drama and comedy, sometimes from Europe. On came the grants and the Hollywood-aided fundraisers. Seymour flooded the airwaves with NPR programming, sometimes running the same program three times a day to edge out other NPR affiliates for listeners. Potential audiences turned turned into real audiences. What she has done is very clever, public radio host Larry Josephson later told the Times. She has taken the cultural and literary and public affairs content of KPFK and molded it to a more conservative audience. I think a large part of her audience are former New Yorkers. They moved out west to run the movie business. One of Seymour's most remarkable qualities was her utter confidence in her own judgment. She quickly became one of NPR's most high-profile, most respected, most polarizing affiliates. At NPR meetings, Ruth will stand up and yell, That stinks! Host John McNally later told the Times, Public radio people weren't used to that. Public radio people also sometimes desperately needed her. In the 1980s, as NPR floundered financially, Seymour led fundraising campaigns, helping save Weekend All Things Considered. She personally led a special hedge drive to help fund expanded NPR coverage of the 1991 Persian Gulf War. She got on the air, she put on a camouflage uniform and put on tough-looking boots, said Stanford. She said, this is a war. We're going to cover it, and the way we're going to do it is with your money so we can send the very best reporters over there. She earned the nickname National Public Ruth. Seymour's supreme confidence drew admirers and created passionate critics who were sometimes one and the same. She was able to cultivate talent when she sought, and she had high standards, Lewis said. She would fight with Larry Josephson over the content of his program in a real shouting match. It's not a good idea to oppose her unless it's really important, Josephson later told the Times. I think once she admitted she was wrong to me years later after we had an argument. She has a tremendous will, and once she wills something, nothing gets in her way, including the facts. She's kind of like an avenging angel from the Bronx who landed in Southern California. Some of her firings and show cancellations could be ruthless, especially in the generally uh, gentler environs of public radio. She was not an easy person to work for, to say the least, said retired host only, whom Seymour hired in 1992 after the L.A. riots to strengthen KCRW's local news offerings. A lot of the decisions she made were, from an objective standpoint, probably the right decision, but were done in ways that were hurtful to people, and she didn't have much patience for that kind of concern. Others found Seymour's forcefulness inspirational. It's really important to know that there's someone out there who's going to be pressure, who's going to pressure you to be excellent. And I've always been influenced by and in awe of a woman, a person who operated without caring what people thought of them, said Jennifer Farrow, Seymour's successor as head of KCRW. She was going to make what she knew was the right decision, and I often look to that for inspiration when I make hard decisions. Seymour's instincts and attention to detail are still felt to this day. In 1996, KCRW became the first public radio station outside Chicago to broadcast Glass's This American Life. Except it wasn't originally called This American Life, it was called Your Radio Playhouse. She was very insistent that it was a terrible title, Glass later said. If not for Ruth, we still might have the other title. Seymour's most enduring effect on music 
was her years overseeing KCRW's Morning Becomes Eclectic, an inspiration to producers and indie music fans all over. Its title is a riff on the morning tide on the title of the 1931 play Morning Becomes Electra by Eugene O'Neill. Of Seymour's era at KCRW, the single most enduring thing is Morning Becomes Eclectic, said Farrow. That's a legacy that continues, and I love that. She had this intellectual rigor, intellectual commitment that was pretty unparalleled for L.A. At the end of Seymour's career in the late 2000s, however, the economy was in turmoil. Legacy media was starting its fateful shift toward less gatekeeper-y digital media, and KCRW's audience numbers had started to flag a bit. Suddenly, one day, she came in and said, I'm leaving, Lewis recalled, and like that, a whole era in radio had come to an end, unto herself. Ruth was one of the great figures in public broadcasting, Lewis said. Seymour is survived by her daughter, Celia. Her former husband, Hirschman, died of COVID-19 in 2021. Her son, David, died of lymphoma in 1982 at age 25. According to biographical material prepared by Celia, Seymour, profoundly affected by the experience had spent each anniversary of her son's death alone, walking on the beach and then spending time going through photos and cracking open the door to a grief that she carried constantly with her, but managed to keep hidden from the rest of the world. In a 1987 interview with the Times, Seymour recalled what she had learned from on giving up on interviewing Sartre, moving to Greek island, a Greek island, and commuting with the meaning of it all, if there even was any. Well, you know, it's not the end that, it's, that's a, that is important, Seymour said. It never is. It's always the journey itself. It's not what you want. It's the search. A lot of people lost their way, but those of us who survived, I think, are better off for it. That was Ruth Seymour, 1935 to 2023. She led KCRW to radio stardom by Matt Pierce from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 27, 2023. 23. All right, let's bring you up to speed with Israel. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. Hopes dim for ceasefire in Gaza by Laura King and Tracy Wilkinson. Tel Aviv. The death toll in Gaza grows by the hour. International pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu steadily increases, and ordinary Israelis voice more and more frustration over the direction of the deadliest war yet against the Palestinian militant group Hamas. Yet, as the year winds down, it's unclear whether the combination of factors will force even a temporary hiatus in fighting that is exacting a vast human cost, eroding U.S. support around the world and threatening to influence American elections next fall. The death toll in Gaza, exacerbated by one of the most intensive bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare, reached a bleak milestone Friday, surpassing 20,000. The United Nations has said about two-thirds of the Palestinians killed were women and children. Israel launched its uh, bloody campaign to eliminate Hamas, after the militant group launched, in a, launched a cross-border attack on October 7, in which it killed at least 1,200 people, mainly civilians, and took about 240 hostages, many of whom remained captive in Gaza. In the latest show of resistance to U.S. calls to stem civilian casualties, Netanyahu told President Biden in a phone call Saturday 
that Israel would continue the war until all its objectives are met, the Prime Minister's office said. Netanyahu also sought to portray as a show of solidarity what was widely read as a rare public U.S. rebuke of Israel. The Biden administration's decision Friday not to veto a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding that more aid be allowed into Gaza. The Prime Minister's office said after the phone call that Netanyahu had expressed his appreciation for U.S. stance on the resolution, which stopped short of demanding a ceasefire while calling for an unhindered humanitarian aid for Gaza. Biden, in brief comments outside the White House, was more taciturn, saying he'd had a private conversation with the Israeli leader and did not request a ceasefire. The Security Council resolution passed after days of negotiations in which the U.S. fought to water down the language so that it did not contain a call for a ceasefire. Staunch backing of Israel by the Biden administration has softened slightly as urgent appeals for a cessation of hostilities have grown domestically, including among uh, Biden's Democratic base, 11 months ahead of a tight presidential election and among numerous U.S. allies. Aid organizations welcomed Friday's U.N. resolution, but said it fell woefully short of the needs. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans displaced by Israel's military onslaught are living without sufficient food or water amidst squalor and disease. Failure to demand a ceasefire, the International Rescue Committee said, is unjustifiable. We reiterate that the only way fully to protect Palestinian lives, enable a sufficient humanitarian response, and offer the best chance of hostage release is to stop the fighting, the IRC said, echoing numerous other groups. In the vote Friday, the U.S. reversed its opposition to a series of similar resolutions agreeing to abstain. Before that vote, the U.S. had stood alone in vetoing measures that called for a ceasefire and did not condemn the October 7 Hamas attack. The Biden administration, along with Israel, has argued that a ceasefire now, which would leave Hamas leadership in place, would allow the militant organization to regroup and rearm. Today, this council provided a glimmer of hope among a sea of unimaginable suffering, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said when the measure was approved Friday. Today, this council called for urgent steps to immediately allow safe, unhindered, and expanded humanitarian access and to create the conditions for a sustainable secession of hostilities. Other Security Council members were angry that the U.S. could not be persuaded to go further. The closest previous attempt example of the U.S. not siding with Israel at the U.N. came in the winding days of the Obama administration, when then-U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power cast a first-ever abstination allowing approval of a Security Council resolution declaring Jewish settlements in the West Bank illegal. Though that resolution was in keeping with international law and has been U.S. policy for decades, the action grew anger from the Israeli government and some Republicans, including incoming President Trump. Today, however, demands for an even for even a temporary ceasefire have not been accepted. A month has elapsed since the start of the last temporary truce. That week-long pause in fighting saw more than 100 hostages who were seized in Israel freed in exchange for about three times as many Palestinian prisoners. But with more than 100 hostages still held in Gaza, efforts to broker another swap have faltered. Hamas recently rejected an Israeli offer to again temporarily halt fighting if more hostages were released. 
families of those held captive are pressing their ceasefire demands with greater desperation. On Saturday, a rainy, windy night in Tel Aviv, thousands of relatives and their supporters huddled under umbrellas, calling for the government to find a way to free their loved ones. We will not stop until everyone returns, said attendee Sivan Cohen Sabin. All of them. All of them. For Israel, the hostage crisis remains an open wound. The accidental fatal shooting December 15th by Israeli troops of three hostages inside Gaza set up an international uproar that has yet to die down. The Israeli military said the soldiers involved violate, vi violate rules of engagement and would be disciplined. The three slain hostages, all in their 20s, had dramatically sought to signal their presence to Israeli troops, emerging shirtless and waving a makeshift flag. They even had managed to scrawl a message of Hebrew on the wall of a building, trying to alert the army to their presence. Meanwhile, in what has become a grim reoccurring ritual, Israel continues to identify those killed in the October 7 Hamas-led massacres who have died since captivity. The latest disclosed death was that of a 73-year-old dual citizen of Israel and the United States, Gadi Haggai. He was killed in the attack on his kibbutz in southern Israel, but militants to took his body into Gaza and are still holding it, Israeli officials said Friday. On the Palestinian side, about 300 U.S. citizens, holders of green cards or their close relatives, remain trapped inside Gaza, the State Department has said, and frantic relatives continue to press to get them out. Israel's armed forces insist they are continuing to degrade Hamas militarily, but 11 weeks into the war, the oft-repeated goal of destroying the group's capabilities seemed far away. Although the Israeli army has claimed to have killed a number of the group's senior commanders and has seized and raised at least one home belonging to Hamas chief Yahya Sidwar, he appears to remain at large and unscathed. In Israel, the conflict has created a political paradox. Surveys suggest most Israelis still support the war but do not trust Netanyahu as a wartime leader. Many harbor doubts about whether his stated aim of crushing Hamas is achievable or question whether he will prioritize bringing captives home. Meanwhile, warnings are growing louder that Israel may miss out on a chance to free the hostages through a deal with Hamas if it continues to ignore international pressure for either a temporary truce or a longer-term halt to the fighting. It's decision time former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert wrote in an opinion piece last week in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. A ceasefire with living hostages or a forced cessation of hostilities with dead ones. That was Hope's Dim for a Ceasefire in Gaza by Laura King and Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. Time staff writer King reported from Tel Aviv and Wilkinson from Washington. All right, continuing. From the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023, Israel, Hamas, not keen on plan to end war. Egypt's proposal comes as Netanyahu vows to expand fight in Gaza and militants continue rocket fire by Sami Magdi Najib Jab Jabain and Melanie Lidman. Cairo. Israel and Hamas on Monday gave cool public reception to an Egyptian proposal to end their bitter war. But the long-standing enemy stopped short of rejecting the plan altogether, raising the possibility of a new round of diplomacy to halt a devastating Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip. 
the Egyptian plan calls for a phased hostage release and the formation of a Palestinian government of experts to administer the Gaza Strip and occupied West Bank, according to a senior Egyptian official and a European diplomat familiar with the proposal. The Egyptian official, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the proposal, said that details were worked out with the Persian Gulf nation of Qatar and presented to Israel, Hamas, the United States, and European governments. Egypt and Qatar mediate between Israel and Hamas, and the U.S. is Israel's closest ally and a key power in the region. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited soldiers in northern Gaza on Monday, did not comment directly on the proposal. But speaking to members of his Likud party, he said he was determined to press ahead with Israel's offensive, launched in response to an October 7 Hamas attack on southern Israel that killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and took 240 others hostage. We are expanding the fight, the fight in the coming days, and this will be a long battle, and it isn't close to finished, he said. Hamas has continued to fire rockets into Israel throughout the fighting. Late Monday, the militant group launched a barrage of rockets, triggering air raid sirens in the southern city of Ashkelon. AP video showed what appeared to be several interceptions by Israel's missile defense system. There are no immediate reports of damage or injuries. The Egyptian proposal falls short of Israel's declared goal of crushing Hamas. It also appears to be at odds with Israel's insistence on maintaining military control over Gaza for an extended period after the war. But Netanyahu faces heavy domestic pressure to reach a deal to bring home the more than 100 Israelis who remain in captivity in Gaza after their October 7 kidnapping. As Netanyahu vowed to continue the war during a speech in Parliament, Relatives of the hostages interrupted him and called for their immediate return. Now, now, they shouted. The rising death toll of Israeli soldiers in the ground operation also threatens to undermine what has been broad su public support for the war. The Israeli military announced the deaths of two more soldiers Monday, bringing the total kills in the war to 156. Hamas did not officially react to the proposal. It remained unclear whether the Palestinian militant group would agree to relinquish power after controlling Gaza for the last 16 years. Is at risk, a senior Hamas official who is believed to be based in Qatar, issued a statement repeating the group's position that it will not negotiate without a complete end to the aggression. He said he, he said Hamas would not agree to a temporary or partial truth for, truce for a short period of time. Word of the proposal came as Israeli airstrikes heavily pounded central and southern Gaza. In the Mahazi refugee camp, rescue workers were still pulling bodies from the wreckage hours after a strike that killed at least 106 people according to, the, to hospital records seen by the Associated Press and as one of the deadliest of Israel's air campaign. The war has devastated large parts of Gaza, killing more than 20,600 Palestinians and displaced almost all of the territory's 2.3 million people. United Nations officials warn that a quarter of the population is starving under Israel's siege of the territory, which allows only a trickle of supplies in. Arriving aid trucks often are met by crowds of desperate people who, in some cases, have looted boxes of food and water. In the southern Gaza Strip, Hamas admitted to shooting dead a 13-year-old boy who was among a group of people who tried to seize aid from a truck. 
The shooting prompted a violent protest and rare public criticism of Hamas, which has shown little tolerance for dissent during its rule. Enraged relatives of the slain boy, Ahmed Burkeh, attempted to attack a police station. A relative, Mossad Burkeh, blamed Hamas for the killing in video comments circulated on social media accusing the policeman of shooting the boy directly in his head. He said the family previously cooperated with Hamas to secure the border area with Egypt. He called for the policeman to be held accountable, warning the family would prevent any vehicles from passing through the area. The Egyptian proposal seeks, not, uh, seeks to not only end the fighting, but also to lay out a plan for the day after. It calls for initial ceasefire of up to two weeks during which Palestinian militants would free 40 to 50 hostages, among them women, the sick, and the elderly, in return for the release of 120 to 150 Palestinians from Israeli prisons, the Egyptian official said. At the same time, negotiations would continue on extending the ceasefire and the release of more hostages and bodies held by Palestinian militants, he said. Israeli officials estimate that 20 of the hostages have died or have been killed in captivity. Egyptian and Qatar, Egypt and Qatar also would work with all Palestinian factions, including Hamas, to agree on the establishment of a government of experts, he said. The government would rule Gaza and the West Bank for a transitional period as Palestinian factions settle on their disputes and agree on a roadmap to hold presidential and parliamentary elections, he added. In the meantime, Israel and Hamas would negotiate a comprehensive all-for-all deal, he said. This would include the release of all remaining hostages and return for all Palestinian prisoners in Israel, as well as the Israeli military's withdrawal from Gaza and the Palestinian militants' halting of rocket attacks into Israel. More than 8,000 Palestinians are held by Israel on security-related charges or convictions according to Palestinian figures. Some have been convicted in deadly attacks on Israelis. While their release would be controversial, Israel has a history of agreeing to lopsided releases, including a deal in 2011 that freed more than a thousand prisoners for a single Israeli soldier held captive in Gaza. Those prisoners included Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's leader in the Gaza Strip. Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Sokri spoke by phone Monday with Iran's chief diplomat, Hossein Amrabaldalian, on the war in Gaza, the Egyptian foreign ministry said. The statement said Shakri briefed Amra Abudalian about efforts to achieve a comprehensive ceasefire. It didn't offer further details. Iran is a major supporter of Hamas. In Washington, the White House declined to comment about Egypt's proposal. U.S. officials remain in close contact with Egypt and Qatar about getting more hostages released and several proposals have been floated, according to a person familiar with the talks. Although the Egyptian proposal is viewed as a positive sign, there is a large measure of skepticism that it will result in a breakthrough, the person said, speaking a condition of anonymity to discuss behind-the-scenes diplomacy. Israel's offensive has been one of the most devastating military campaigns in recent history. More than two-thirds of the more than 20,600 Palestinians killed have been women and children according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, which does not differentiate between civilian and combatant deaths. Sunday night's strike in the Magazi camp leveled a three-story building and damaged neighboring ones. On Monday, the first responders and residents, some digging with bare hands, 
pulled dozens more bodies out of the rubble. At Al-Qaiza Martyrs Hospital in nearby Deir al-Bala, men prayed over several dozen bodies laid out on the ground. Sobbing relatives peeled open body bags to get a last look or kiss the face of a loved one. One one wept as he hugged a child-sized body wrapped in bloody plastic sheeting. Another man knelt over the body of a relative screaming, I swear to God he was a man. I swear to God he was better than the whole of Hamas. The bodies of 80 or more people killed in other strikes across the central Gaza were brought to the hospital from late Sunday to early Monday, hospital records show. Since Friday, 17 Israeli soldiers have been killed in combat, most in southern and central Gaza, an indication of the heavy fighting in and around the city, the southern city of Khan Yunus. Late Monday, the Israeli army said it had discovered the stolen car of the family of an Israeli hostage, Samir al-Talalka, in a hospital compound in northern Gaza. Al-Talalka was among three hostages mistakenly shot dead by Israeli soldiers in Gaza this month. There has been widespread anger in Israel against Netanyahu's government, which many criticized for failing to protect civilians on October 7 and promoting policies that allow Hamas to gain strength over the years. Hamas has declined to accept responsibility for military and policy failures. That was Israel Hamas not keen on plan to end war by Sami Magdi, Najib Jobain, and Melanie Lidman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023. Magdi, Jobain, and Lidman wrote for the, write for the Associated Press and reported from Cairo, Rafa, Gaza Strip, and Tel Aviv, respectively. Right, here is another Israel story from the same world section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023. Iran says Israeli strike killed one of its generals in Syria, from the Associated Press. Beirut, an Israeli airstrike on mo- Monday in Damascus neighborhood, killed a high-ranking Iranian general, Iranian state media said. Iranian officials and allied uh, militant groups in the region vowed revenge for the killing but did not immediately launch any retaliatory strikes. The killing of Razi Mozavi, a longtime advisor on the Iranian paramilitary revolutionary guard in Syria, comes amid ongoing fears of the Israel-Hamas war sparkling a regional spillover. Iran-backed groups in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq have launched attacks in Israel and its allies in support of the militant group Hamas. Clashes along the Lebanon-Israel border between Hezbollah and Israel have continued to intensify with daily exchanges of missiles, airstrikes, and shelling across the frontier. In the Red Sea, attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen against ships they believe to be connected to Israel have disrupted trade and prompted the launch of a U.S.-led multinational naval operation to protect shipping routes. Iran-backed militias in Iraq <coughs> operating underground, under an umbrella group dubbed the Islamic Resistance in Iraq have launched more than 100 attacks of bases housing U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, which, have, which they have said are in retaliation for Washington's support of Israel. The group claimed an attack on a U.S. base next to the commercial airport in Erbil in northern Iraq on Monday. A U.S. military official speaking on condition of anonymity in accordance with regulations confirmed the attack and said it had caused injuries but did not provide further details. 
Israeli strikes killed two other generals this month in Syria. Israel on Monday struck the Saida Zainab neighborhood located near a Shiite Muslim shrine, according to Iran's official Islamic Republic news agency, or IRNA, and the Britain-based opposition war monitors Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. IRNA described Mozabi as a close companion of General Qasim Soleimani, head of Iran's elite Quds force, who was slain in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq in January of 2020. Neither the Israeli military nor Syrian state media immediately issued a statement about Monday's attack. Israeli officials declined to comment. Iranian President Ibrahim Reza said in, in a statement said that Mozabi was martyred while serving as an advisor for the resistance front, defending holy shrines in Syria as well as safeguarding Islamic ideals. He vowed that the Israeli regime will definitely pay for this crime. Hossein Akbari, Iran's ambassador to Syria, condemned the killing, saying that Mosavi was in Syria as a formal military advisor. Israel will definitely get a response to this crime at the right time and the right situation, said Akbari, speaking from Damascus. Though IRNA didn't provide other details about the attack, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said Israel's military targeted Mosavi after he entered a farm in the area, which allegedly was one of several offices for Hezbollah. The Lebanese militant group, alongside Iran and Russia, has helped keep President Bashar Assad's government in power throughout the Syrian conflict. Hezbollah, in a statement, called Mosavi one of the best brothers who worked to support the Islamic resistance in Lebanon for decades of his honorable life. Israel has carried out hundreds of strikes on targets in government-controlled parts of war-torn Syria in recent years. It doesn't usually acknowledge its airstrikes on Syria. But when it does, it says it's targeting Iranian-backed groups there <coughs> that have backed Assad's government. That was Iran says Israeli strike killed one of its generals in Syria from the Associated Press out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023. All right, here's something else from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 27, 2023. Israel expands war to central Gaza refugee camps. The latest ground offensive threatens further bloodshed in urban areas crowded with displaced people by Najib Jobain, Wafa, Surafa, and Sami Magdi. Rafa, Gaza Strip. Israeli forces on Tuesday expanded their ground offensive into urban refugee camps in central Gaza after uh, bombarding the crowding, crowded Palestinian communities and ordering residents to evacuate. The Gaza Strip's main telecom provider announced another complete interruption of services in the besieged territory. The military's announcement of the new battle zone threatens further destruction in a war that Israel says will last for many months as it vows to crush the ruling militant group Hamas after its October 7 attack. Israeli forces have been engaged in heavy urban fighting in the northern Gaza and southern city of Khan Yunus, driving Palestinians into ever smaller areas in search of refuge. The U.S. said Israel's Minister for Strategic Affairs, Ron Dermer, was meeting with Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Despite U.S. calls for Israel to curb civilian casualties and international pressures for a ceasefire, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the military was deepening the fighting. We say to the Hamas terrorists, 
We see you, and we will get to you, Netanyahu said. Israel's offensive is one of the most devastating military campaigns in recent history. More than 20,900 Palestinians, two-thirds of them women and children, have been killed, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, who count, whose count doesn't differentiate between civilians and combatants. The agency said 240 people were killed over the last 24 hours. The United Nations Human Rights Office said the continued bombardment of central Gaza had claimed more than 100 Palestinian lives since Christmas Eve. The office noted that Israel had ordered some Gazans to move there. Israel said it would no longer grant automatic, vis automatic visas to UN employees and accused the world body of being complicit partners in Hamas's tactics. Government spokesman Elon Levy said Israel would consider visa requests case by case. That could further limit aid efforts in Gaza. Residents of central Gaza described shelling and airstrikes shaking the Nusayret, Magazi, and Beret camps. The built-up towns hold Palestinian dri Palestinians driven from their homes and what is now Israel during the 1948 war, along with their descendants. The bombing was very intense, Radwan Abu Sheita said by phone from Beret. The Israeli military ordered residents to evacuate a belt of territory the width of central Gaza, urging them to move to nearby Deir al-Bala. The UN Humanitarian Office said the area affected was home to nearly 90,000 people before the war and now shelters more than 61,000 displaced people, mostly from the north. The military later said it was operating in Berea and asserted that it had located a Hamas training camp. The telecom outage announced by Paltel follows similar outages through much of the war. Netblocks, a group that tracks internet outages, confirmed that network connectivity in Gaza was disruptive again and likely to leave most residents offline. Senior Hamas official Osama Hamdan said several countries have sent proposals to resolve the conflict following news of an Egyptian proposal that would include a transitional Palestinian government in Gaza and the occupied West Bank. He did not offer details of the proposal. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said Israel faces multi -arena, a multi-arena war on seven fronts, Gaza and the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. We have responded and acted already on six of these, he told Parlim the Parliamentary Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. Iranian-backed militia groups around the region have stepped up attacks in support of Hamas. In Iraq, such militias carried out a drone strike on a U.S. base in Erbil on Monday, wounding three American service members, according to U.S. officials. In response, U.S. warplanes hit three locations in Iraq connected to a main militia, Khatib Hezbollah. Almost daily, Hezbollah and Israel exchange missiles, airstrikes, and shelling across the Israeli-Lebanese border. On Tuesday, Israel's military said Hezbollah militants struck a Greek Orthodox church in northern Israel with a missile wounding two Israeli Christians and fired again on arriving soldiers wounding nine. Hezbollah is risking the stability of the region for the sake of Hamas, said Israel's military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari. In the Red Sea, attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen against commercial ships have disrupted trade and prompted a U.S.-led multinational naval operation to protect shipping routes. 
The Israeli military said a fighter jet on Tuesday shot down a hostile aerial target above the Red Sea that the military asserted was on its way to Israeli territory. The USS Laboon, a Navy destroyer, and American fighter jets shot down 12 drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land-attack cruise missiles in the southern Red Sea that were fired by the Yemen-based Houthis over a 10-hour period Tuesday, according to the Pentagon. U.S. Central Command said there was no damage to ships in the area or reported injuries. More than 85% of Gaza's 2.3 million people have been driven from their homes. UN officials say a quarter of the territory's population is starving under Israel's siege, which allows it a trickle of food, water, fuel, medicine, and other supplies. Last week, the UN Security Council called for immediately speeding up aid deliveries, but there has been little sign of change. In an area Israel had declared a safe zone, a strike hit at home in Mawazi, a rural area in the southern province of Khan Yunus. One woman was killed and at least eight were wounded, according to a cameraman working for the Associated Press at the nearby hospital. In response, Israel's military said that it wouldn't refrain from operating in safe zones if it identifies terrorist organizations' activity threatening the security of Israel. Hamas's October 7 attack in southern Israel killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and the militants took about 240 others hostage. Israel aims to free the more than 100 remaining hostages. Israel blames Hamas for the high civilian death toll in Gaza, citing the group's use of crowded residential areas and tunnels. Israel says it has killed thousands of militants without presenting evidence. At the Karim Shalom border crossing, UN and Gazan medical workers unloaded a truck carrying about 80 unidentified bodies that had been held by Israeli forces in northern Gaza. They were buried in a mass grave. Medical workers called the odors unbearable. We cannot open this container in a neighborhood where people live, Dr. Marwan Hams, Health Emergency Committee Director in Rafa, told the AP. He said the Health and Justice Ministries would investigate for possible war crimes. The Israeli military announced the deaths of two more soldiers, bringing the total killed since the ground offensive began to 161. That was Israel expands war to central Gaza refugee camps by Najib Jobain, Wafa Sharafa, and Sami Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 27, 2023. Jobain, Sharafa, and Magdi report right for the Associated Press and reported from Rafa, Dara Al-Bala, and Cairo, respectively. All right, now let's go to an opinion article here, but something completely different, or at least in some respects, uh, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 19, 2023. Do liberals have an anti-Semitism problem? Many who document right-wing anti-Semitism leave unchecked left-aligned ideologies by Jonah Goldberg. The good news is the bad news is wrong. The bad news? A Harvard-Harris poll which found that 67% of 18- to 24-year-olds believe that Jews are, as a class are oppressors and should be treated as oppressors. One piece of good news? The poll is pretty lousy as Ilya Soman, author of Democracy and Political Resistance, explained for Reason magazine. The poll combines two questions in one, asking people to agree to both the description of Jews as a class 
and how they should be treated and uses the term like oppressor, which are fairly unfamiliar to people not plugged into campus speak. Even better news, the poll is outlier, is an outlier. Surveys from respected outlets like the Pew Research Center find that American attitudes towards Jews are pretty favorable. But this is where the good news supply runs dry. Because even if Harvard's findings exaggerate the problem, the problem still exists. Actually, there are several problems. Rising anti-Semitism in the U.S., particularly among young people, and, not unrelatedly, a depressing amount of both general ignorance and highly cultivated ignorance. Given the horrific headlines since the Hamas attack, it's not worth rehashing the evidence of anti-Semitism's resurgence both on college campuses and off. In October, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified that anti-Semitism was reaching historic levels with fully 60% of religious hate crimes being committed against 2.4% of the population. As for general ignorance, an Economist YouGov poll finds that 1 in 5 18 to 29-year-olds believe the Holocaust is a myth. An additional 30% say they don't know if it is. One way to look at this is to just throw this on the pile with other depressing findings of widespread ignorance about things that have not, nothing to do with Jews. Half of Americans cannot name three, the three branches of the U.S. government. Social media surely plays a big role. While it's true that bad actors at home and abroad have been pumping anti-Semitic sewage onto kids' screens for a while now, it's worth keeping in mind that digital iconoclasms tearing down any established truths and conspiratorialism are rampant on the internet. A quarter of Europeans and twice as many Russians think the moon landing was faked. Nearly a fifth of young Americans agree. Still, the economists found that most older Americans know the Holocaust happened. In other words, young people are a particular problem. Which brings us to the cultivated ignorance, i.e. the deliberate encouragement of anti-Jewish bigotry by various institutions and influencers. The right has a well-publicized anti-Semitism problem. The GOP frontrunner famously dined with anti-Semites Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Various new right and alt-right gargoyles indulged in anti-Jewish and anti-Israel rhetoric from their internet perches. Those voices are grotesque but the power of left-aligned academics and activists shouldn't be underestimated. While groups like the Anti-Defamation League, Southern Poverty Law Center, and the various elite media outlets that rely on them as authoritative sources have covered right-wing anti-Semitism zealously, they have allowed the intellectual poison of anti-colonial and anti-oppressor ideology to go unchecked. This ideology takes it as a given that Jews, Zionists, Israelis, Pick your label, are indeed oppressors. This framing is seductive for young people. For instance, UC Berkeley political scientist Ron Hasner recently conducted a small survey of college students on issues related to Israel. Most students, 86%, supported the popular chant, From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But nearly half, 47%, could name the river or the sea in the chant. Some guessed that the river was the Nile or Euphrates, that the sea was the and the sea was the Atlantic or Caribbean. Ten percent thought Yasser Arafat was the first prime minister of Israel. It's fine to condemn both sides, I do, 
but the shock of decent liberals and progressives at the explosion of anti-Semitism in the wake of Hamas's attack is testament to the delinquency of the left-wing elites running academic and cultural institutions. When professors and students celebrate a pogrom and administrators find themselves tongue-tied about con condemning murder or the harassment of Jews on their own campuses, complacency becomes oblivious. One last piece of good news. When Hosner's researchers explained basic facts to the students who enthusiastically embraced from the river to the sea, many of them changed their views. Yes, this survey illustrates the failures of the center-left. It also shows they can remedy them if they want to. That was Do Liberals Have an Anti-Semitism Problem by Jonah Goldberg from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 19, 2023. All right, now here's something from the weekend section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24th, 2023. Love has kept them together for 82 years. Jack and Carla, Carla Weingarten share secret to a long, happy life by Kaylin Brown. As a lively group of elderly women scurried onto a shuttle for a shopping day on a recent Tuesday afternoon, Carla and Jack Weingarten could be found snuggling under a blanket inside the Los Angeles apartment watching I Love Lucy episodes on repeat. Carla, who was 100, and Jack, who turned 105 on Christmas Day, used to look forward to their retirement community's weekly outings. But these days, they prefer a more laid-back afternoon, sitting side-by-side -side in their recliner chairs and watching one of Carla's favorite shows. Jack mostly just listens because he's lost much of his vision. As they hold hands for hours. In, Car in August... Carla and Jack celebrated a major milestone, 82 years of marriage. We're very lucky, said Carla, who has short-term memory loss. Then she leaned over toward her husband to encourage him to chime in. Yeah, he said in agreement before kissing her hand tenderly. Jack, whose speech and memory have faded in recent years, used to tell their two sons that, they, that the key to a healthy marriage is the man always having the last word. Yes, dear. Jack doesn't talk much nowadays, but when he does, he's typically calling out for Carla or telling her that he loves her multiple times a day. I love you too, Jackie, he always responds. An estimated 17,000 centenarians live in California, with nearly 6,500 of them in Los Angeles County, according to the California Department of Finance. The number gets even smaller, roughly 25% as estimated by the Census Bureau's American Community Survey when it comes to how many Californians aged 90 and up are still married. According to the Guinness World Records, the longest documented marriage in the world is 86 years. In other words, Carla and Jack's long-lasting relationship is something of an anomaly. The, the couple's Hollywood-like love story began in Vienna, where Jack and Carla had been neighbors and family friends since they were kids. Their families also attended the same synagogue, though they didn't pay much attention to each other during the five-year age difference. The family story goes like this. Around 1936, a teenage Jack moved to what was then known as Mandatory Palestine on the advice of a teacher because anti-Semitism was rapidly rising in Austria and neighboring Germany. Carla fled there a few years later during World War II. Her father thought she'd be safest there because she spoke Hebrew. He'd later be killed in a concentration camp along with her mother, younger brother, and grandparents. Before Carla left Austria, Jack's mother asked her to give him a, a letter. 
His mother didn't know exactly where he was living, but she hoped Carla would find him. Soon after she arrived, Carla ran into one of Jack's childhood friends who told her when he was where he was, and they reunited. Carla doesn't remember what she thought of Jack when she saw him again, but his reaction was laced with the charming sense of humor he's known for, according to their sons. You look a lot better now, Jack said to a 17-year-old Carla, knowing that she didn't have any family or resources at the time. Jack told her, don't worry, I'll take care of you, and he suggested they get married. They tied the knot on August 12, 1941, and had their first son Joel four years later, and their second son Henry in 1950. The young family moved to New York City in 1958 and made their way to Los Angeles a few months later. Jack worked for a children's apparel company, which he eventually took over, while Carla worked as a seamstress and pattern maker. She also taught sewing classes in their garage. They struggled moving to America, but what I respected was that they never, bought, uh, they never brought that to their children, said Joel. Unlike some of their, parents, uh, their friend's parents, Carla and Jack didn't remind him and his brother about the sacrifices they made for them, he added. I never heard anything from my parents about what they went through. They never looked back. They only looked forward. Jack and Carla had a vibrant social life until a couple of years ago. First, Jack hurt his head after two falls and had to recuperate during days-long hospital stays. Then he got COVID-19 and pneumonia. But before, before all that, Jack played bridge competitively for several years. He and Carla would go to every social event at their independent living community and encourage others to attend. If there was a dance floor, they were always on it. They're such a loved couple here, said Deborah Rivera, the community's business manager. She's known them since they moved into the retirement complex nearly 15 years ago. The couple used to travel regularly to places like Hawaii, Austria, and Germany, and they have friends of various ages around the world. They've outlived many of their longtime friends. Fluent in multiple languages, including German, Hebrew, and French, they typically speak to each other in German. Photos from their trips, along with smiling images of their sons, daughters-in-law, and three granddaughters, adorn every square foot of their spacious two-bedroom apartment. Carla used to love making personalized cards on her desktop computer for her loved one's birthdays, but she no longer does that these days. We're lucky, Carla said, of their lives. We thank God. We have no complaints. We have a good place here. We enjoy being here with the people. We have good friends. Carla still exercises every day and regularly gets her hair and nails done at the community salon. And when her husband falls asleep in the evenings, she usually goes downstairs to catch up with her friends over a glass of wine. Three other centenarians live at the senior complex, but Carla and Jack are the only married couple, Rivera said. The word tenderness comes to Rivera's mind when she thinks about the wine gardens. They have a spark of love that's still there after all these years, she said. But with them, it's so pure. It's so genuine. You see that they truly just enjoy each other so much still. You see them walking down the hall. They're always holding hands, which is so sweet to see. I think that's what is keeping them alive, added their son Joel, the fact that they have each other. Carla and Jack's marriage also had made an impact on their three grandchildren. We all kind of look up to them as a success story and something to strive for because they do love each other so much and really do enjoy each other's company and walk, waking up next to each other, said granddaughter Ashton Cohen Weingarten, 33.
They're so committed to each other, added her sister, 30-year-old Lindsay Cohen Weingarten. They grew up together, and now they've grown old together, and their relationship remains so strong. Their marriage has taught me unconditional love. Willie Coronado, one of the couple's caregivers, has picked up a few gems from them. Jack told Coronado, who's been married for 23 years, that the secret to living happily ever after is making sure that when you go to bed at night to, uh, with your wife, things are settled. Don't go to bed upset. That's something I keep with me all the time, said Coronado, who's worked with them for more than a decade. I know it's not easy, but I know he has so much wisdom in those words. Back in Carla and Jack's cozy apartment, Lucille Ball bounced on the TV screen in their living room. While the housekeeper tidied up their bedroom and a caretaker prepared their lunch, Jack began drifting off to sleep as he and his, wa as he and his wife held hands. He didn't let go, and neither did she. That was Love Has Kept Them Together for 82 Years by Kaylin Brown from the Weekend section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 24, 2023. All right, on to other entertainment news. Uh, we go to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, December 19, 2023. The Long Shadows of Schindler by Justin Chang, film critic. On a wintry 1944 night at Auschwitz, several Jewish women, naked and shivering, are forced into a large room and plunged into total darkness. They scream and cling to each other, peering up in dread at the looming shower heads. They've been warned about what happens next. But it doesn't happen. Water, real water, comes pouring out instead. The women are not going to die, at least not now. As they bathe and drink, many of them weep in relief. One uh, can't, can't help but laugh, as though appreciating their deliverance for the cruel cosmic pu uh, punch, punchline it is. It says something about the debate that Schindler's List still inspires that, three decades after its release, its most terrifying sequence is often dismissed as its most fraudulent. Some version of this uh, rush with death really did befall some of the Jewish women who worked for Oskar Schindler, the German industrialist and Nazi party member whose rescue of more than 1,100 Jews during the Holocaust is memorialized in Steven Spielberg's 1930, 1993 film. Bound for, uh, for Schindler's new munitions factory in Brunlins is what is now the Czech Republic. The women were sent to Auschwitz for an inspection stopover that not all, that not all of them survived. Even so, the shower episode has been referenced in Survivor Testimony. I remember after they shaved my head, we were put in a dark room and cold water came out, said Rena Fender, one of the Shinder Judem, in a 20, 2018 interview with the Times. But for the sharpest critics of Schindler's List, the moral bankruptcy of the shower scene had little to do with its basis, in fact, and everything to do with Spielberg's manipulative intent. With unconscionable virtuosity, the filmmaker, still best known for the escapist throws of Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, had exploited the gas chambers, the grim apotheosis of the Nazi death machine, for a moment of cheap, borderline pornographic suspense. He had, critics argued, turned Auschwitz into the staging ground for another classically Spielbergian miracle. One could, one could found a religion on the transformation of Zyklon B into running water, critic J. Hoberman wrote witherly, witheringly in his Village Voice review, an early pen amid an avalanche of critical praise.
For Haberman and others, that scene was merely the most egregarious of Schindler's List's many reversals. Here was an ostensible epic of Jewish suffering and survival, but one centered on the perspectives of two uniquely charismatic Nazis, Oscar Schindler, Liam Neeson, and Amon Geth, Ralph Bienevs, the monstrous SS Commandant whom Schindler caholes, bribes, and ultimately outwits. The list is life, we hear from Schindler's trusted accountant, Yitzhak Stern, Ben Kingsley, never mind that during the Holocaust, a list of Jewish names meant unambiguous death. To paraphrase a damning quote from Stanley Kubrick, here was a picture that honored 1,200 Jews who lived and therefore couldn't possibly be a truthful representation of the 6 million who died. But how to represent the unrepresentable? Years earlier, filmmaker Claude Landsman had already decided that you couldn't, and his 1985 documentary, doc, 1985 documentary Shoah made the most convincing possible case. Wholly refusing the nonfiction tropes of reenactment and reconstruction, conventions by which even the toughest subject can be made digestible, Landsman's film instead endlessly circled what Holocaust survival Emil Fackenheim called the presence of an absence. By focusing methodically on survivors in the present, Landsman hadn't really made a film about the Holocaust. He made a film about the void the Holocaust left behind. And so the extraordinary success of Schindler's List, arriving some eight years after Shoah, was as much a violation of Landsman's first principle as it was a rewriting of conventional Hollywood wisdom about what a movie could and could not show. Defying his own early doubters, Spielberg proved that you could make a roundly popular film, an audience hit, a critic's darling, a surefire Oscar winner, and a future educational tool about the defining human catastrophe of the 20th century. You could render unspeakable atrocities in stark, harrowing, but ultimately bearable and inevitably sanitized terms. You could, while appropriating to tell the story drawn from true events, lead your characters through meticulous recreations of a ghetto, a concentration camp, and yes, a gas chamber, and still bring them out of it in time to discover a measure of uplift on the other side. Did Spielberg's characteristic emphasis on the positive, his desire to tell a story of unlikely heroism, perseverance, and courage amount to a form of artistic denialism, a failure to confront the full horrific magnitude of the Holocaust in cinematic terms? To ask the question is to assume that such a confrontation is even possible. And it raises still more questions that Schindler's List and the many Holocaust dramas, dramas that followed it can help us answer. What do we want or expect from cinematic treatments of history? What is an artist's appropriate response to the Holocaust? Theodore W. Adorno's famous declaration that to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric notwithstanding. Must a filmmaker's obligation to history always supersede their prerogative to entertain? And Schindler's List, it's worth acknowledging, is inordinately, at times almost indecently entertaining. Thirty years later, it remains, even at three hours, as crackling and propulsive a narrative as any Spielberg has ever, ever rattled off. John Williams' keening, consoling violence can still make you weep and make you loathe yourself a bit uh, for weeping. 
Janusz Kam Kamenski's nimble black-and-white cinematography evokes the stark, battered realisms of 1940s photos, but it also isn't afraid to bathe Neeson's Schindler in a sheen of old Hollywood glamour. Nor does the movie shy away from making an indelible screen villain out of Fiennes' Geth, who terrorizes his Jewish prisoners in ways both intimately personal and horrifically arbitrary. Spielberg would later achieve a more conflicted reckoning with his own Jewish identity in Munich, his anguished 2005 thriller about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But in Schindler's List, the Jews themselves seize the screen only fittingly. In a famous 1994 Village Voice Symposium on Schindler's List, Art Spiegelman, the author of the Holocaust-themed graphic novel Mouse, M-A-U-S, wrote that the movie refracts the Holocaust through a central image of a righteous Gentile and a world of Jewish bit players and extras. These bit players work, whisper, chatter, laugh, philosophize, run, hide, weep, lament, and survive, sometimes as an undifferentiated human blur, and sometimes with great individual vividness. One of the movie's most memorable survivors, Haja Dressner, is played by Mary Fabian, a survivor herself. Upon the movie's release, more than a few critics argued that some of Spielberg's Jews veered perilously too close to anti-Semitic caricature. The ones we see hiding jewels and other valuables during a Nazi raid, or the ones dealing black market goods in the pews of a Catholic church. But then, the very act and art of deal-making you soon realize is fundamental to Oscar Schindler's story, which is, after all, the story of a German war profiteer. Spielberg is tickled by the grifter in Schindler, the wily operator who sets out to amass a fortune on the backs of Polish Jewish workers, only to then spend that same fortune to save as many of those workers as possible. He's fascinated by the negotiations and calculations that people make under desperate circumstances, and he's energized by the unmistakable Hest movie dimension of, Spiel of Schindler's eventual plan. Spielberg has always been a maker of comic thrillers at heart. And it's that tension between his natural buoyancy as a filmmaker and the then-unprecedented grimness of his subject matter that can pull you into Schindler's List as intently as it sometimes pushes you out. Film historian and author Annette Insdorf, one of the movie's lone defenders in the Voice Symposium, aptly noted that Schindler himself succeeded by way of manipulation by a showmanship, not unlike Spielberg's, that knows and plays its audience but in service of a deeper cause. And indeed, watching Schindler's List is as if the mischievous genre filmmaker who delighted in bumping off Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark had now moved on to defeating them on a more prestigious, historically grounded stage. Spielberg's showmanship worked. Schindler's List won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director for Spielberg, who finally earned the industry recognition that had eluded him for nearly two decades. It also won screenwriter Stephen Zalian an Oscar for his adaptation of Thomas Kennelly's 1982 book, originally titled, titled Schindler's Ark. The film grossed $322 million worldwide, less than a third of what Jurassic Park, Spielberg's other triumph of 1983, would ultimately rake in, but still far more than most had anticipated. And while Jurassic Park went on to spawn an increasingly unnecessary franchise, Schindler's List leaves behind a more complicated legacy. 
its indirect sequels include more than a few of the Holocaust dramas that have emerged in the last three decades, nearly all of which exist within and sometimes uh, subconsciously pushed back against the very long shadow of Spielberg's landmark. The uplift that many embraced and others decried in the Oscar-winning Life is Beautiful 1997, Roberto Benigni's tragic comic fable about an Italian father doing everything in his imaginative power to ensure his Jewish son's survival could be diagnosed as either a uh, nerver, uh, nerviver or more misguided version of the creeping uh, sentimentality at the heart of Schindler's List. Keeping its horse largely out of the frame, Benini's movie has its own dubiously escapist way with a gas chamber. Here, a plucky young boy's aversion to bathing is enough to spare him the dire fate of the other children at Auschwitz. A young girl somehow endures and survives a crowded Auschwitz gas chamber in Tim Blake Nelson's intensely disturbing The Gray Zone, 2001, which Spielberg himself regarded so highly that he at one point considered distributing it himself. For all that, the movie proved almost heroically unmarketable and decidedly unspielbergarian in its aversion to uplift. Set around the time of the famous 1944 uprising at Auschwitz, it focuses on the Sonderkommandos, the male prisoners tasked with ushering their fellow Jews into the guest chambers and disposing of their corpses afterward. Adapted from, the, from Nelson's own play, The Greystone embraces a measure of blatant artifice with its arc dialogue and jarringly American actors, David Arquette and Steve Buscemi, among others, but visually, an unbearable brute force realism prevails. Screams, corpses, walls splashed with blood and excrement. If Nelson's movie never found its audience, greater recognition awaited Laszlo's nemesis tense and, and enveloping Son of Saul, 2015, which focuses, like the, on the, like the Grey Zone, on a Son der Commando, here played by Geza Rorik in October 1944. Benevis archives a more artful and finally more pervasive vision of Hell on Earth. Following his lonely protagonist in a maze of shallow focus, background-blurring tracking shots, he sustains a terrifying level of immediacy even as he keeps the worst of the atrocities just out of sight. Here was a new kind of Holocaust movie, the death camp drama as essential one-man odyssey. Son of Saul won many awards, the Grand Prix at Cannes, the Oscar for foreign language film, and most coveted of all, Landsman's personal seal of approval. Further laying his aesthetic card on the table, Nemes made a point in interviews of differentiating his movie from a surviving a survivor story such as Schindler's List, a very good film, he told Mumbai writer Amir Ganjavi. My film is not about survival. It's about the reality of death. Survival is a lie. It was the exception. Not everyone bought the idea, however, that Nemesis' death cam neorealism was ultimately any less slick or manipulative than Spielberg's most cl more, more classical suspense thriller technique in an admiring but ambivalent New York Times review of Son of Saul, critic A.O. Scott wrote, Mr. Nemesis may disdain Schindler's List, as every ambitious European art film director must, but he's very much in its debt. Nemesis is not alone in this, and that debt, it's worth noting, is one that Schindler's List asked for. The curse of outside success is that it encourages us to see a singular achievement as something definitive to invest it with a larger, 
representational significance. And if there's a reason Spielberg's movie might actually play better now, it's that it's been freed from the imperative to be an all-encompassing vision of the Holocaust, that it can now be seen more clearly for the strange, unlikely story it has to tell. That story about a good-hearted Nazi and a cluster of Jews who survived is an anomaly, a heartwarming exception that proves a dreadful rule about human complicity in evil. For too long, the story was treated as a narrative template, giving rise to less skilled imitators, self-conscious correctives, and even the occasional Oscar-winning abomination like Taika Waititi's Hitler-satirized audience-infantizing tearjerker Jojo Rabbit. Some of the most powerful Holocaust movies since Schindler's List have avoided those easy classifications. Several stories may indeed be disproportionately represented in the annals of Holocaust cinema, but the best ones have the wit to acknowledge just how improbable, even inexplicable, the act of survival could be. I'm thinking of Lajos Cote's haunting, underseen, fateless, 2005, whose disturbingly beautiful rendering of a young man's hellish experience appends every Holocaust movie cliché. I'm also thinking of Roman Polinski's The Pianist, 2002, in which the director's own experience of fleeing the Krakow ghetto as a child gave him a uniquely personal, even darkly comical perspective of the life of survivor Vladislav Zipman, Spilman. The radical deliber deliberation of Polanski's framing emphasizing Spilman's helplessness at every turn disgraces the usual bro bromidus about the triumph of the human spirit, as does Adrian Brody's still astonishing performance. If anything unites the two significant new Holocaust movies that have emerged this year, it's that they both approach their subject with unusual aesthetic and ethical rigor and without much use for narratives of survival. Opening in Los Angeles theaters next month is Steve McQueen's monumental documentary, Occupied City, which slowly recounts the destruction of the Jews in German-occupied Amsterdam. The film's great formal coup is to lead us on a tour of the city, explaining to us what happened on this block and in that building, but always showing us Amsterdam in the present day, never in the past. Not unlike Shoah, an influence buried in every atom, occupied city leaves us to imagine horrors that ultimately defeat the imagination. A different kind of restraint is employed in Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest, now in theaters, a coolly damning, formally exacting drama about a Nazi family led by real-life SS Commandant Rudolf Haas living next door to the gates of Auschwitz. Loosely inspired by Martin Amos's 2014 novel, it's a portrait of everyday evil from the inside. <clears throat> it brings us just close enough that we can hear the screams and the gunfire and perhaps even smell the smoke. It also plays, as some have pointed out, like a responsible version of 2008's ill-advised The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. This willingness to approach atrocity from a side angle, to make points through quite implication rather than full-blown confrontation, rests on certain expectations. It assumes a viewer's basic familiarity with the history and iconography of the Holocaust, a familiarity that rests in part on depictions and recreations we've seen in movies like Schindler's List. 
remits the zone of interest so radical in its means is that it seeks not to perpetuate those images, but rather to defamiliarize them, to cancel them out. The less we see of them, Glazer seems to argue, the more they might actually retain their power to disturb. The ending of the zone of interest, which I won't reveal here, dovetails with that of Schindler's List in ways that are all the more fascinating for being unintended. Here, in two different movies, are two fictional depictions of real-life Nazis both suddenly confronted with the consequences of their actions and a brief glimpse of how history will regard them. One man saved Jewish lives, and some of us may flatter ourselves into thinking we'd follow his example under similar circumstances. The other man is an efficiency expert of death, and he holds up a mirror to the human capacity for unchecked, unexamined evil. Both their stories are worth telling, pondering, and remembering. Neither one can or should claim to be called definitive. I hope that the great numbers that are going to see Schindler's List will have their curiosity piqued about what was lost, professor and author James Young wrote in the 1994 symposium. But I fear that they will come away saddened now that they have seen the last word on the Holocaust. At the time, it surely did offer the last word. Thirty years later, though it's clear that Schindler's List has begun rather than ended a conversation, it has even invited its own sharpest rebukes. That alone may be its most meaningful and valuable legacy. That was The Long Shadows of Schindler by Justin Chang, film critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 19, 2023. And now we come to an article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 22, 2023, on the one and only Barbara Streisand. This is called Keeping It Together. She hopes for single buyer for a huge Streisand collection by Julia Carmel. Countless iterations of Barbara Streisand currently occupy six storage lockers in the Coachella Valley. Sandwiched there, sandwiched between corrugated metal walls and hefty layers of dust, the star's iconic profile graces thousands of items ranging from posters and record jackets to clocks and nesting dolls. It's not unusual for Streisand to be everywhere. She has sold 68.5 million albums over the course of her career as one of just 24 people to have completed an EGOT. She's currently promoting her new memoir, My Name is Barbara, and infiltrating households through the news, public radio, late-night TV, and plenty of magazines. But these Barbaras, the ones in the desert, are part of Louis Papalas' personal collection. Lou, who discovered Streisand in 1963 on the Mike Douglas show, spent the last 60 years buying a myriad of items related to the iconic performer. But when Lou died earlier this year, his youngest daughter, Mara, inherited what's known to be the world's largest collection of Streisand memorabilia. Though Mara recently cataloged more than 12,000 items, the estimated size of the collection has ranged from 50,000 to 100,000 items over the years. For 20 years, I knew I'm going to have to handle this, Mara said, as we sat inside one of Lou's former storage units. It's not me, but I get it. I understand his genius slash uh, brilliance slash dreams. Lou and his wife lived in West Bloomfield, Michigan, but enjoyed splitting their time between Michigan and Palm Desert, California. In 2010, after the death of a close friend's parents, Mara moved to California as well. Living closer to her parents, 
than her two sisters, Mara decided to take a leave from her job when her father's health started declining. After he died, managing Lou's collection became her full-time task. As someone who isn't a Streisand fanatic, Mara doesn't have any interest in keeping the collection for herself. Though she appreciates her father's love for collecting, she also inherited the steep monthly bill for his six storage units. This expense and the stress is not sitting pretty with me, she said with a chuckle. Nine months after Lou's death, Mara has nearly everything sorted and labeled. One unit function as, functions as her office, with a few remaining Streisand posters hanging on the walls. Down the hall, there are shelves, drawers, and boxes labeled with, uh, and boxes labeled with subcategories or a one-of-a-kind names: concert wines, rare forty-fives, funny girl, pregnant doll. These catalogs go like twenty-five to fifty bucks a piece, and I have boxes and boxes and boxes. Mara said as we moved into the next unit, pointing out to stacks of magazines that featured Streisand over the years. These are pretty cool. There are Barbara Streisand titles. They're all different. They're kind of fun. There's a whole box of them from England. As she rolled up each unit's metal door, she rattled off the contents inside, while some items are labeled like a guaranteed authentic coral-painted thumbnail-sized chunk of Streisand's home that was removed following an earthquake on January 17, 1994. Many things had to be identified by Mara and her father's friends. This is sheet music. These are just clippings, rolled posters here, magazines, posters, roadshows. These are framed album covers he exhibited, she said, pointing out different sections. Magazines, more records, books, memorabilia, programs, CDs, VHS, stacking dolls. There's a jack-in-the-box with a Barbara inside, a Fabergé-styled egg. While Mara put up put a few items up for auction at Julian's, including the dress Streisand wore in her 1965 TV special, My Name is Barbara, she's hoping that she won't have to sell everything individually. I just don't have any interest in getting on eBay, she said. I want somebody to buy this whole collection and then do something with it. Lou's dream was to create a non-profit Barbara Streisand Museum and Performing Arts Center. But it's not hard to think of the many things an eclectic millionaire could do with a collection of this size. Mara hopes that a superfan will buy the whole lot to create anything, from a Streisand museum to a bed and breakfast with movie-themed rooms. I feel like I'm sitting on a little avant-garde niche type of thing. Someone could go to, so someone could do something really grand with this, and I would love it, and my dad would love it, she said. But I don't think that's something that somebody's me because I don't have the love of it. I have the love of him. Born in 1946, Lou discovered Streisand when he was 17 and instinctively began his collection by stuffing magazine clippings about her into a dresser drawer. He spoke often about being in awe of Streisand's beauty, talent, and candor. But as his stash of barbabilia grew, it made he made it very clear that his love for collecting was stronger than his actual fanaticism. I am not driven to meet her, although I would be thrilled, he told Riverside's Press Enterprise in 2005. She's very uncomfortable with adoration. Her drawer expanded as he snagged magazines and attended concerts over the years, but his collection really took off in 1999 when he discovered a website called eBay and began to bid daily averaging at least three buys per day, 
Lu wrote on his eBay profile at one point. And as his collection grew, some of Lu's dreams began to come true. He saw Streisand performed live for the first time in 1994 and began exhibiting his collection after he retired from the Ford Motor Company in 2002. Just a few years later, he started taking over a barbershop in Palm Strings at night. On lucky evenings, Lou would change the sign to read Barbara Shop, beckoning people inside to see busts of Babs, movie posters, record sleeves, and other gems. I think we all first met Lou on eBay, said P.J. Miller, Lou's friend of more than 20 years. It was always bidding. He was consistent. He was there every day, every month, every year. Miller and Lou first talked in 2002 when she cold-called him to wish him luck with an event he was organizing for Streisand's 60th birthday at Detroit's Caucus Club. Even though Miller was calling from Phoenix, Lou wanted his fellow collector and superfan to feel included. He says, I know you can't be here, but I'm going to make you feel like you were, she recalled. And about two weeks later, I get this big cardboard box full of napkins and confetti and programs and photographs and balloons. Soon enough, she started driving to Palm Desert every few months to help him organize his collection. Though she estimated the collection had 25,000 or 30,000 items, Miller is completely confident that Lou's is the largest Streisand collection in the world. I've talked to many other collectors, and they have a lot of larger items, but not as many of them, Miller said. Lou got down to the nitty-gritty and collected the lobby cards and the clippings and the magazines, the small paper items that get lost in floods, get lost in fires, get thrown out, and become more and more valuable over the years. But rather than flipping his uh, purchases for a profit, Lou often hung onto his items or gave them away to other Streisand lovers. He sold pieces, but I think he gave away much more than he ever sold, Miller said. He would go to these fa uh, fan events with a box of t-shirts, and no one ever left without a t-shirt from Lou. Over the years, he got the chance to show parts of his collection in exhibits at the Hollywood Museum, the Bernard Museum of Judaica, and the Jewish Museum of Florida FIU, among other institutions. Following his exhibit at the Hollywood Museum, Lou was invited to one of Streisand's concerts in Arizona, where he was ushered backstage. When I met Barbara, she put her hand on her hip, looked me straight in the eyes, and said in her Brooklynese best, So where'd you get all my stuff? Lou recalled in an interview. Through collecting, Lou also became a de facto expert on anything related to Streisand. In 2022, he was even credited on Streisand's album Live at the Bonsoir for sharing memorabilia with her team. Perhaps Streisand would be interested in buying the collection back herself. The Mara says she has talked with a few people from Streisand's team. She's unsure if they'd want to buy it from her. Streisand's team did not respond to requests for comment for this story. But of course, it's hard to assign a price to Lou's collection. Donating the whole thing to a nonprofit is always an option, but Mara and her family hope to recoup some of the costs that went into the collecting and housing all of these items. I've done an enormous amount of work for this whole year. There's an enormous amount spent on storage over the years. There's an enormous amount spent on the purchases, Mara said. Though no one in her family is completely sure how much Lou spent on his collection over the years, Mara said that they generally estimate it cost him about a million dollars. 
But when it comes to figuring out the current value of all of these items, it's hard to nail down specifics for a collection this large. People have told me I need to appraise it, Mara said, but appraisers want like $80 to $300 an hour. And with the amount of hours that it would need to do this, I can't afford an appraisal. The list of items that she'll keep for herself is short and sentimental. Two signed albums, one with a note to her father, and a caricature of Lou Sandwich between Streisand and Omar Sharif in Funny Girl. Perhaps a few things will go to family members and lose friends who also love Streisand, but Mara is hoping that someone buys the whole collection before she returns to work in February. Anyone interested can contact Mara at tryyoucan at yahoo.com. Though it'll be a relief to shed the cost and effort of maintaining her father's six storage lockers, she knows that it will also it also will mark the start of a new phase of grief. I'm going to feel very weird about the collection when I no longer have it. This is his playground. This was his joy. He loved to be down here, Mara said as we sat in Lou's old office chairs. I have to always look at this as a blessing no matter what, she added. It's given me a good distraction. It's given me a chance to try to make him proud. And that was Keeping It Together by Julia Carmel from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, December 22nd, 2023. Now then, we got a couple of stories from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for December 7th, 2023. And we start off with this one. And this is called Margaret Collaborators Started on the Same Page. Kelly Freeman Craig, a lifelong fan, had thoughts on Judy Bloom's book, Are You There, God? They usually converge with the authors by Lisa Rosen. For generations of women, Judy Bloom needs no introduction. For the rest, she is the author of the magnificent 1970 young adult novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, among a host of other books for kids and adults. A few years back, Bloom sent out a tweet asking her followers which book they'd most like to see made in a movie. Kelly Freeman Craig, writer-director of the teen film The Edge of Seventeen and a lifelong fan of Bloom, sent her an email asking to adapt Are You There, God? Bloom had rebuffed many such requests over the decades, but this was the one she didn't even know she was waiting for. I love The Edge of Seventeen, Bloom says. No one had ever come to me with a credential that relates to my book. And then Kelly wrote, Oh, and by the way, my mentor is James L. Brooks, and we would like to come and see you. That was the start of this wonderful experience. I love Kelly, and I love Jim, and I loved being able to work with them. Kelly notes that her letter also mentioned how much Bloom's work had influenced her. It was in the back of my mind when I made The Edge of Seventeen. It's been in the back of my mind for as long as I can remember because Judy's books were the books that made me love reading, and then I started, started to write it and I was as I was reading Judy's books. I would fill up spiral notebooks with my own stories, and it was because I was reading stories that felt like my life, and until then, I didn't know my life was worth a story. The two speak via Zoom, Bloom from her home in Key West, Florida, and Freeman Craig from a hotel room in Manhattan. As the title implies, Margaret has some questions for God. Raised with no religion by her Jewish father Herb, Benny Safdie, and Christian mother, Barbara Rachel McAdams, a Gotham Award nominee for The Betrayal, 
Uh, Margaret feels confused, searching out various religious experiences to find where she belongs. Having been uprooted from New York to New Jersey and about to enter the sixth grade, she also has questions about the changes her body is going through, or that she hopes it will go through. As Freeman Craig wrote the script, Bloom went back and reread her book for the first time in decades, and she had notes. In the book, Barbara's devout Christian parents had disowned her when she married her. When they come back into her life, causing discord, the scene is soon followed by the sudden appearance of Herb's mother, Sylvia, Kathy Bates, making a, pl a plug for Margaret's Jewish heritage. Bloom realizes the two scenes would be far more powerful if converged into one blowout. It was synchronistic, because I was about to pitch the same thing to you, Freeman Craig recalls, adding that the two often had the same ideas at the same time. The thing about Kelly and Jim, too, is that they're so talented. They didn't have any ego about me coming in and saying, well, what about this, Bloom says. That was an amazing difference from anything I had ever experienced working with people who made movies. I would write Kelly about all kinds of things. I remember saying, when I was a young married, uh, we cooked with soups. Remember that? Freeman Craig laughs. Yes, I was going to bring that up. She even found the old cookbook with recipes that used cans of soup as ingredients, including it in Barbara's dubious culinary efforts. I used to make them for dinner parties, Bloom says ruefully. One of the biggest dilemmas Freeman Craig faced was in casting. Without the right Margaret, they had no film. After seeing hundreds of girls, Abby Ryder Fortson walked through the door, and then it was so clear, there she is. Almost immediately, a larger challenge loomed. We cast Abby in March of 2020, days before the world shut down, and she had just turned 12, so then it was a race against puberty, Freeman Craig says of the pandemic delay in the filming. Margaret spent the whole movie praying for boobs, and by the time we got to the costume room, God had answered so Ann Roth, our costume designer, had to bind her, and then we did a ton of visual effects to fatten, flatten her chest. The film premiered in theaters in April to near-universal critical acclaim, but disappointing box office returns. It found a new life on other platforms. Both women note how many people tell them they watch the film on a flight. Are You There, God remains one of the best-reviewed movies of the year with a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The film stays true to the original material while expanding many of the surrounding roles. Film says it's why the film is better than the book, which was solely focused on Margaret's point of view. Kelly was able to take what I had written and make them into full-blooded characters on the screen. I love that. Freeman Craig finds Bloom's praise wonderfully overwhelming. My hope from the very beginning was to make Judy happy and for the movie to feel like an extension of the book, so, that's, so that just means everything to me. That was Margaret Collaborates, Collaborators started on the same page by Lisa Rosen. And here's another one from the same, same uh, envelope section. World War II is history. The SOS is for today. Jonathan Glazer made his Holocaust film Zone of Interest to provide an urgency amid the current political landscape by Gregory Elwood. Jonathan Glazer is admittedly not a prolific director. In the 23 years since his acclaimed feature film debut, Sexy Beast, he's made just three other features. He's never exactly sure why he tackles the films he makes, but this quartet, 
which includes 2004's Birth and 2013's Under the Skin, didn't just land on his doorstep. He had to dig deep creatively to find them. That's perhaps one of the reasons it's taken a decade for his latest collab-celebrated effort, The Zone of Interest, to enter the cultural conversation. Adapted from a Martin Amos novel and a rare British entry in the international film Oscar race, Zone depicts the seemingly everyday life of a German family during World War II. Except this isn't just any household, it's the family of Rudolf Haas, Christian Friedel, his wife Hedwig, Sandra Hüller, and their five children. Haas was the real-life commandant of Auschwitz from 1940 to 43, and his family lived in a beautifully decorated home right next to the Nazi death camp. They were so close that Glazer's film hauntingly frames the juxtaposition of the Haas children playing in a vibrant garden with the sounds of screaming prisoners and the churn of crematorium furnaces in the background. It's not just an artistic choice, but a historically accurate one. As a Jewish man, Glazer remembers learning about the Holocaust when he was a child and thinking how unfathomable it all was. But as an adult, his motivations to tackle, tackle this subject were driven by a long list of considerations, beginning with the opportunity to, to reach a new generation, as well as his anger at the current political landscape. There was also his disgust at recent fictionalized accounts of these horrors that he feels are wrong-headed to the importance of the subject. And lastly, the continuing proliferation of Holocaust deniers and revisionists. And the ethics, should I do it? And if I'm going to do it, how should I do it? And what must I avoid? So all of that stuff is so interesting to me, Glazer says. And on the back of that investigation comes a film. There's your 10 years right there. That investigation saw Glazer spend untold hours researching the Auschwitz Memorial Archives. There he found numerous anecdotes from the prisoners in the camp and those who were forced to serve the Haas household that directly informed the project. He notes, a lot of these, a lot of the things that are said in that film they said I didn't write. Hedwig sitting at the table telling the Polish girl in the house if I wanted my husband would sp uh, spread your ashes across the fields of Babis. I didn't write that. That's her line, word for word, that comes from the archives. Glazer said of the subcamp uh, sub where prisoners were forced to farm. Hedwig's anger at the idea of having to leave that house? I didn't write that. That's what happened. But for Glazer, it was standing at that actual wall, seeing the proximity of those people, how they lived, and what they did abutting the death camps that stayed with them the most. I was imagining myself as a prisoner on the camp side of the wall, hearing those children splashing in that pool and then being on that side of the wall where the kids are splashing in the pool and imagining the prisoners on the other side, Glazer said. What you see in the film is a simulation of what happened, how they lived and where they lived. It's the distance in the house, and the chimney you see in the film is exactly the same distance between the house and their chimney. One of the initial pieces of visual history Glazer found in the archives was a roll of film that Haas shot of his family an album where his kids are playing in the garden and you can see the pool, the flowers, the garden pathways, and the greenhouse. But something is intentionally missing from the photos. Any hint of the prison wall. That tells you a lot about the psychology of the man in a sense, Glazer says. Imagine that after the war, he's got this photo album of the four years he spent in that particular posting uh, with his wife and his family. There isn't a shot of a camp chimney, 
there isn't a shot of the prison wall. And so in a way, our job was to take those pictures that he didn't take. Glazer and his director of photographed uh, and his director of photography, Lucas Zhao, used 10 static cameras strategically placed in a recreation of the Haas homestead, a repurposed building found in just 200 yards from the real location to film a majority of the movie. The lack of dolly shots, soft focus, backlight, etc. gives the proceedings an unexpected, an unexpected intimacy. It almost seems like it's happening in contemporary times. The whole aim of the film was to make it as present tense as possible. I kept using the phrase present tense as it has to be now, Glazer says. It has to have an urgency. It can't be an event that happened in history and therefore we are somehow safe from it. In other words, a museum piece. I had no interest in that. That was World War II is History. The SOS is for today by Gregory Elwood. And those are both from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for December 7, 2023. All right, now we got a couple of stories from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, December 14, 2023. This one is called A Great Number. Kind of? Maybe. Camp isn't home. The closing tune from Theater Camp finds its power from shaky beginnings by Michael Ordonia. There are three bits of alchemy in Camp isn't home, one of the most memorable movie songs this year. But to appreciate the treasure it becomes, you have to understand the dross from which it came. The largely improvised comedy feature Theater Camp sprang from a short by the same name. Uh, a loving, a loving paean to the finding of community in, the, in theater that bonded co-writer and co-director Nick Lieberman, co-writer, co-director, and co-star Molly Gordon, and co-writers and co-stars Noah Galvin and Ben Platt in real life. They proudly bear the theater nerd label, even musical theater nerd, and just in case we miss the depth and breadth of the nerdiness, musical theater history nerd. We went to a theater camp. The four of us met doing theater as kids, Lieberman tells the envelope via Zoom with composer Mark Sonnenblick. For all the craziness and the not sleeping and the, and the maybe inappropriate acting exercises and everything, those are still my most meaningful childhood experiences and where we got so much of our community. In theater camp, Gordon and Platt play longtime creative partners, Rebecca Diane and Amos, stressing out over Rebecca Diane's lateness in crafting the big finale number for the camper's annual original musical. Confronted by Amos to perform the song she claims she has written before the kids and with the Amos's hostile arming of her with an auto harp, Rebecca Diane improvises gobbledygook based on whatever she sees girl with an open snapple, a boy who's looking down, and we all come here for summertime. Camp isn't home, but isn't it, in a way, it kind of is, oh, it kind of is. Molly is just a brilliant fountain of absurd lines and observations, says Lieberman, explaining that while she ad-libbed much of the scene during a writing session, a lot of the most absurd details in the lyrics came from Molly improvising on camera in that moment. Sonnen Blick adds, we were like, say, we were like, can we say kind of again? Is there a way to get it three times in the beginning of the chorus and have it somehow sound like a song? Because then it'll be amazing. This is a comedy with a happy ending. 
So when the kids present the final song to a packed house of family and friends, it's real and it's spectacular. The first bit of alchemy is Rebecca Diane's random observations coming from the mouths of the campers. So as one kid after another names themselves, they each become that boy looking down. It becomes internal and invested rather than an external observation. When we hit that moment of a girl with an open snapple, and it's like the spotlight rent anthem vibe, we immediately know what's going on and you can feel the grow, Sonnenblick says. How could the kids perform this in the moment and have it feel really sweet and beautiful? The pre-chorus answers that question uh, springing from one of the one of Gordon's improvs that didn't make it into the film when she desperately sang, We All Fly to Find Our Home. That bit of Rebecca Diane's wild-eyed scrambling didn't make the final cut, but in the finished song, We All Fly wings in on a soaring harmony. It's the first hint of real inspired songcraft that Rebecca Diane has applied, which the kids breathe into life. We all fly to find a place where we belong. Son of Blake says Platt jumped on the notion of making a harmony of that line during the writing session, and it took off, leaving the novelty parody behind. To discover these things in the room, and we don't have to get uh, director approval because the directors are right there, we found the exact harmonies later. But that came from Molly shooting something out there that we tried to make into something beautiful. Then the gold is fully struck in the chorus, which takes her stumbling words and sets them to a delicately beautiful melody at first sung by just one camper. Madison Laura's unsure but lovely vocal gives the impression of a lost kid finding her way to the community and home of theater. We were all working on it in that room together. Is it really going to be this rambly and this wordy? But there was a special feeling to it, says Lieberman. We couldn't stop singing it. Eventually, the entire cast is singing those words, making them no longer insecure, but a proud declaration of the imperfection of their union. Camp isn't home. I think it kind of is. When she's making it up, or uh, the, kind, the kind of is her doubting her statement, Camp isn't home, wait, is that right, says Sonnenblick. Then when they sing it later, it act, it's actually an emotional thing. I have such affection for this place that isn't home, but maybe it is. It's a place where I belong. Or as Lieberman says of his own youthful days in theater camp with his eventual collaborators, whatever it was, we loved it. That was a great number, kind of maybe, by Michael Ordonia. Now we have this next one. This is called After Mr. Fix-It Era, What's Next? Bob Iger has spent the last year fixing what ails Disney. There's still work to do as Marvel struggles and activist investors bang on the door by Ryan Founder. After the year of negative headlines Walt Disney Company has had, I suppose it's not exactly a shock that Chief Executive Bob Iger is facing renewed pressure from a prominent activist investor. The stock has limped along like Snow White's little helpers after a tough day in the mine, though it got a boost last month after the company said it narrowed its quarterly streaming losses by more than a billion dollars while Disney Plus continued to gain subscribers. Despite Disney cutting 8,000 jobs and targeting $7.5 billion in cost savings, which is $2 billion more than Iger previously promised to Wall Street, hedge fund billionaire Nelson Peltz received his proxy campaign against the company, aiming for multiple board seats. 
Peltz's firm, Tryon Fund Management, said in a statement November 30 that it would take its case for a change directly to the shareholders after Disney turned down its request for board representation. Peltz's effort has considerable backing from former Marvel Entertainment CEO Isaac Ike Perlmutter, who sold the comic book publisher to Iger in 2009 and was later sidelined from the movie side and finally ousted in March, though he remains a major shareholder. There are legitimate concerns about Disney's business, which is why Iger has spent so much of his first year back in Mr. Fix-It mode. Floating the idea of selling off TV networks, overhauling the company's structure, and plowing forth on a plan to offer its flagship ESPN sports network direct to consumer. Cable and broadcast TV are in decline. Streaming is expensive and still losing money. And the movies? Ouch. The Marvels bombed. Haunted Mansion flopped. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was a big disappointment, and the 100th anniversary pegged animated movie Wish is struggling. It hasn't been all bad. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 was a hit, and Pixar's Elemental at least recovered from its weak opening, proving a good movie can catch on when the word gets out to kids and parents. But overall, not great. That said, it's not obvious what Peltz, now a reoccurring thorn in the side for the company, would like Iger to do differently. Iger has acknowledged Disney's problems, and more on that later, and taken steps to address them. As corporate governance expert Charles Elson told Yahoo Finance, this is going to be a big distraction for Disney. Disney responded to Pounce's missive by noting that Perlmutter, who, according to the company, holds 78% of the shares Tryon claims beneficial ownership of, has voiced a long-standing personal agenda against Iger. The company has made moves to shore up investor confidence by naming two new board members, Morgan Stanley CEO James P. Gorman and former Sky CEO Jeremy Darrock and declaring its first dividend in more than three years. Another shareholder, Blackwell's Capital, issued its own statement expressing concern that Tryon's campaign prioritizes Mr. Peltz's ego over what is best for all the Disney shareholders. Analyst Rick Prentice of Raymond James wrote in a note to clients that we do not believe Tryon has made it clear what exactly it would change at Disney, in contrast with other, more clear-cut activist campaigns. What should Disney do? Cut more? Unbuy Fox? Iger spent much of recent days talking about what still needs to be done at Disney and explaining how it got to where it is now. The Marvel's production suffered from a lack of supervision during COVID, he intimated. The studios must focus on quality over quantity, Bad movies shouldn't get sequels. And when he hinted months ago that he might be willing to sell or spin off ABC and other networks, there was more of a trial balloon that was more of a trial balloon he floated while thinking out loud, he suggested. In a bit of an eyebrow raising comment, he told Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Deal Book Sum uh, Summit that the company must make sure to prioritize entertainment over messages in Disney content which was widely interpreted as a concession to those who have accused the studio of going too woke. It's easy to say why Iger might be eager to move on to a new phase in his second reign at the company he previously ran for 50 years with a remarkable track record of success. I can tell you that building is a lot more fun than fixing, Iger said at, at a November 28 town hall meeting for staff, 
moderated by ABC News anchor David Muir. But hey, the most fun part is yet to come. Succession planning for 2026. That was After Mr. Fix-It Era, What's Next by Ryan Founder. And both of those are from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, December 14, 2023. Let's end this with a quick movie review from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023, A Flawed Philosophical Gotcha by Robert Abel. The world is in, in its current state probably needs more movies built around smart people talking to and not just past each other. Just as essential to that are filmmakers with a grasp of how these scenarios work best. Such is the sense of prom promise and loss manifested by Freud's last session, an old-fashioned bout of ideas and beliefs in the two great men of history enter one room vain speculating a 1939 encounter in London between born-again British author C.S. Lewis, rendered with elegant politeness by Matthew Goode, and the father of psychoanalytical reason Sigmund Freud, roared into life by Anthony Hopkins. It's hardly surprising that this was stage material first. Playwright Mark St. Germain turned a tantalizing historical tidbit Freud met with an unnamed Oxford Don shortly after Adolf Hitler invaded Poland into a dramatized debate about religion and reason, imagining the pre-Narnia Lewis as that visiting professor. With the world on the brink of war, an ailing atheist faces mortality, and an aesthetic theologian still in the flesh of his embrace of Christianity, this Lewis is not yet the lovelorn academic that Hopkins played so memorably in 1993's Shadowlands, there's plenty on tap for any heady two-hander worth its salt, whether performed in front of a live audience or cameras. But director Matthew Brown, who also co-adapted St. Germain's 2010 play, has fallen for the regrettable, rarely well-proven view that movies should open up plays with flashbacks and subplots. In this instance, the flashbacks most aptly to Lewis's backstory of World War I scars and meaningful relationships with a friend's mother, Orla Brady, Brady and colleague J.R.R. Tolkien. In Freud's case, they're about his impactful childhood and last years in a worsening Austria. The unintended effect, however, is of cramped twin biographies when what we're for, here for is a drawn-out colloquy in a tight space. Lewis's gentle prodding of a rationalist edges versus Freud's fumulating about God's existence. Not that their past would factor into such a debate, and cinematographer Ben Smithard is as accomplished with a misty forest of, or war scene as he is in uh, as the period richness of Freud's study. But what suffers in these expansions is the pleasure of sustained characterization, a memory no longer entrusted solely to its portrayer's voice, eyes, and movement, but instead a portal to something superfluous, as if depth of character were best captured with a location budget instead of what an actor can inject directly into our brains. The problem exists also in the well-intentioned but lurching attempt to give a storyline of equal weight to Freud's daughter Anna, Liv Lisa Fries, herself both the dutiful heir to her father's legacy, she would become a child psychology pioneer, and the sum of his disturbing attempts to psychoanalyze the lesbianism out of her. Her scenes, often with Dorothy Burlingham, Jodie Balfour, is st in stern judgment of her lover's lack of independence, feel tacked on to give Lewis's and Freud's discussions of sexuality some additional added oomph when the complexity of Anna's situation deserves its own fully attentive telling. 
With so much chronological haphazardness, the handsomely produced, if choppily edited, Freud's last session becomes trapped in a no-patience land, neither uh, uh, effectively and enlarged nor satisfyingly intimate. There are a handful of thick and thorny exchanges that kind of remind us how invigorating it is when ideological opposites wrestle the big questions with passion and humor, and we're left with the impression that soulful coexistence is better than definitive answers. But with so much extra wedge in, those moments can't help but feel rushed. The leads give it their all. Hopkins' Vingaria pairing is especially lively, but the overall takeaway is of historical prospects playing philosophical gotcha when we yearn for three-dimensional humans filling up a room with their lives, learnings, and flaws. That was a flawed philosophical gotcha by Robert Abel from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, December 26, 2023. That's called Freud's Last Session, rated PG-13 for thematic material, some body, violent language, sexual material, and smoking. Running time, 1 hour, 48 minutes. Playing at the Lamely Royal in West Los Angeles, AMC Grove, 14 in West Los Angeles. And folks, it looks like we are coming to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.